Welcome back to another installment of the Esoteric News Briefs. Tonight we have Dead in a Dinosaur, Athenian Chicken Curses, and How to Kill a Water Bear. Are you ready? Alright, let's get weird. Amateur fossil hunter Shingo Kishimoto discovered a portion of mandible in 2004 on Awaji Island in Japan. Since his discovery, more of the creature has been unearthed, and it's been declared to be a new species of hadrosaur, one of nine hadrosaur species discovered in Japan. It was named Yamatosaurus Izanagi, named for the first capital of Japan, Yamato, and the first-born Shinto god, Izanagi. It is estimated to have been between 20 and 30 feet long and weighing in at 4 or 5 tons. That's not the only dinosaur to make the news this time. In Barcelona, Spain, there is a massive papier-mâché sculpture of a stegosaurus in the town of Santa Coloma de Gramenet. Recently, a father and son noticed a foul smell emanating from within the sculpture. The police were contacted, and looking through a crack in the sculpture, they noticed the body of a man wedged face down in the leg of the beast. Here's where it gets weird. The working theory is that the man had dropped his cell phone inside the sculpture and then climbed inside himself to retrieve it, but fell into the leg section where he was unable to call for help. Authorities don't believe there was any foul play involved, but they don't know how he dropped his cell phone inside, nor do they know how he got inside the sculpture in the first place. Nope, no foul play here. Mm-mm. I suppose they should just be grateful that the sculpture wasn't made from the material in our next article. Until recently, one of the toughest man-made materials was something called graphene. It's really a rather cool creation because it is formed entirely from carbon. What makes it unique is how the atoms align themselves. This is similar to carbon nanotubes, which are carbon atoms that form in a way that they create a tube shape smaller than a single strand of human hair. The element that has taken the number one spot for durability is called hexagonal boron nitride. This material is formed almost identically to graphene. Both creations are arranged in a hexagonal pattern on the atomic level. This is what makes them so durable. In the case of boron nitride, the material is formed from three atoms of boron and three atoms of nitrogen. Graphene, by its nature, is prone to shattering. This is mostly because it's made entirely from carbon, but boron nitride, while not being as rigid, resists damage at a far greater capacity than graphene. In fact, it is ten times more resistant to cracking than graphene. This resistance comes from the asymmetrical structure of boron nitride. When a crack forms in graphene, it shoots through the entire structure, basically snapping it in half diagonally. In boron nitride, the crack will branch and fork, redirecting and redistributing energy throughout the material, making it harder for the crack to continue. More astounding is that this is considered a two-dimensional material. A single sheet is only a single atom thick, with strength added by overlapping layers. According to the author of this article, this material has the potential to be used in electronic textiles, stick-on electronic tattoos, 
and even for implants. Let's shift gears from the world's toughest material to the world's toughest life form, the tardigrade, commonly known as the water bear. These microscopic creatures are tough enough to survive the vacuum of space and re-entry. But finally, scientists have managed to kill one. They didn't shoot it with a gun, they shot it from a gun. You may be asking yourself how this experiment worked since they are living organisms and probably wouldn't sit still long enough to be fired from a pistol. The answer is simple. Scientists froze them solid. While this doesn't kill them, it does make them brittle and prevents them from wriggling away. These frozen critters were then encased in the equivalent of an ice bullet, which is one of the most supervillain sounding things I've heard in quite a while. And then, they were shot from a two-stage light gas gun, which is the second most supervillain sounding phrase that I've heard. So this gun starts out like any other firearm. It launches a projectile using the ignition of gunpowder. But it then accelerates the projectile further using pressurized gas such as hydrogen or helium. This also allows the scientists to adjust the overall velocity of the projectile so they can determine fatal impact rates. At lower velocities, the tardigrades thawed out and eventually went back to normal functionality, although slower than the controlled subjects, which led scientists to believe that the gunshot water bears had internal damage from the impact. At higher velocities, the tardigrades were exploding on impact. So now we have an answer. How do you kill the world's most enduring organism? Well, you freeze it solid, encase it inside of an ice bullet, and fire it at high velocities from a two-stage light gas gun until it explodes. Easy, right? Let's move on to something considerably older and much more esoteric. It seems the Athenians didn't mess around when they placed curses. In 2006, a clay jar was unearthed beneath the floor of the Agora's classical commercial building used by ancient craftspeople. This jar had the names of a quantity of people inscribed on the surface, written in two different handwritings, indicating that at least two individuals were involved in the crafting of this curse. Along with all the names, the Greek words for we bind were also found written upon the jar. The jar was then pierced by a large iron nail, and inside were the remains of a chicken head and lower limbs. It was placed near four burning pyres, which could have been utilized in the ritual itself. There is a running joke that if an archaeologist can't figure out what an artifact is, they usually just declare it to be a, quote, ritual object, or even say that it's magical. In this instance, it's pretty clear that this was, in fact, the remains of a binding curse used to prevent someone, or possibly everyone whose name was written on the surface, from proceeding with whatever task they were attempting. But what happens if the curse is one that you placed upon yourself? John Beckett outlines the steps for undoing this magical malfunction in our next article. How often do you find yourself saying, I wish. 
we seem to hear it a lot in everyday society. Often enough, it's become a turn of phrase. In the magical community, though, those words sometimes hold a bit more weight, especially when they are said about ourselves. Repetition is another way that we accidentally ensorcel ourselves. How frequently do you use phrases like, I always, or I never? Think about casting spells or submitting a prayer. Sometimes you repeat the same verse multiple times, adding to it each time, building layer upon layer until it's made real. Even religious chants are phrases repeated in rhythm in order to achieve a specific mental state. How is that any different from saying, I always screw this up, when something in your life goes wrong? Beckett would also like to point out that a simple phrase can't cause a curse, so we have to take a closer look at the phenomena in order to understand it better. To Beckett, the difference is in the desire for something to happen. The examples he uses all start with, I want, and then a statement of whatever the desire is. This starts the engine, he says, but the will shifts the transmission into drive. So when we both have the desire and the will behind a statement, whether we actually want the end result or not, something starts to happen. Knowing what you've said or done is an important element for removing the curse. If you can narrow down what you are saying about yourself, what your internal reality is, it will help to eliminate it. Beckett reveals that most self-curses are a type of binding, a magical restriction that prevents you from proceeding further in an aspect of your life. This is a good thing, though. Bindings are easily removed by the person who casts it, which, in this case, was you. So, let's set things right. Beckett has you begin by casting your circle, the basic protective barrier used in spellcraft, and in treating local spirits, ancestors, or deities to assist you. He advises you to work with those deities or spirits that you already know, and not purpose-chosen deities, since, as he phrases it, gods are not vending machines. Next, you need an object to represent yourself. He suggests a photograph, since the object may get damaged in the working. Hold the item and say three times, This object is me, and I am it. Replacing object with whatever the item may be in reality. So if you're using a photograph, you would say, This photograph is me, and I am it. If you choose to use a photograph, I would personally recommend using one that is inside of a frame because of the next step. For the second step, you take a length of cotton string and wrap it around the object. Wrap it tightly and as many times as it seems appropriate. This string represents the restrictions and bindings, literally, that we have placed upon ourselves. As you wind the cord, state out loud that the cord is representative of the binding you have placed upon yourself. Be as specific as possible, 
since defining the curse makes breaking it easier. When you feel that there is enough cord, tie it in place and cut off the excess. Take some time to hold the bound item. Look at it. Examine it. See how tightly you are bound and how little of yourself is visible through these bindings. It was easy to wrap the cord, wasn't it? One time around restricts you very little. But as you add more layers, layers that are so simply bound, you begin to find yourself restricted more and more. Once you can feel the restrictions you've placed upon yourself, move on to the next step. For this part, you will need a knife or a pair of scissors. Beckett suggests using a ritual knife if your practice uses one, but most Wiccans that I know don't use sharpened athames since they are largely symbolic items. But if you have one that is sharp, this is an opportunity to use it. Beckett makes this part simplified, instructing you to cut away the bonds as you say something along the lines of, I sever and release the bonds I placed upon myself. While you could just snip the knot and watch the bindings fall away, I feel like this step needs to be done in much the same way that it began, one binding at a time. For me, this helps you visualize how much harm you have done to yourself and helps to slowly release it. In much the same way that we began, we are undoing our actions through repetition. Because you will be repeating your chosen phrase multiple times, I suggest you be brief. You will find that in the end, this phrase can become your personal mantra later on as you feel yourself inadvertently adding new bindings. Think of it like preparing a counterspell in advance. It's much easier to remove a single chord than it is to remove a dozen, right? Now for the fun part. What do you do with all these tiny pieces of cotton twine? Well, you burn it, of course. It may not burn well on its own, so Beckett suggested using 91% rubbing alcohol to get things started. Cotton is absorbent, so be ready for quite a blaze and don't overdo it. What I personally suggest is placing the cords in your cauldron and splashing it with a bit of Florida water or Kanaga water, or really any cologne water that you favor. Not only does this help keep the fire going, but it smells fantastic too. Then, every time you smell that scent, you will recall this ritual, and in that recollection, release some of the bonds that you may have again inadvertently placed upon yourself. Remember, it's all about repetition. The last part is one that many people may forget in their excitement since they now feel free. Take up the object that you use to represent yourself and three times say, this object is only an object, or something along those lines, so that you dissolve the connection that was made between you and it. The last thing you want is to accidentally have created a poppet of yourself. You may now break the circle, thank those who worked with you, and gather the remaining ashes from the cords. These ashes should be disposed of outside the home. 
Beckett himself put them in a bag and threw them away in a convenience store dumpster. I personally would sprinkle them at the crossroads so that they can be dispersed in the four directions. It's your choice, really. The important part is that they must be removed from the home. Now that your binding is removed, go out and live your life unfettered. There's your $50 word for the day. Whenever you feel like you are becoming restricted again, repeat the mantra that you created, and maybe splash a bit of Florida water around. Remember, sometimes you are your own worst enemy. Links to all these articles will be in the show notes. I want to thank all my patrons who help make this show a reality, especially those who pledge at the highest tier, like Samantha Shaver. I have also added a reward for every patron who donates as little as $1 per month. The Esoteric Book Club Footnotes These are standalone mini-episodes that can be heard on your patron page. Originally, I was offering articles that I was writing, but then I realized that my listeners were consuming an audio broadcast, so you probably would rather just listen to an article rather than read one. Anyway, the first episode is posted, so check it out. That's everything I have for tonight. So, until next time, remember, stay weird.